You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Mic check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you, the DU Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Today on the show, I have returning guest, Colin McNair, decoy specialist from Copley Fine Art Auctions. Thanks so much for having me, Katie. It's great to be back and really exciting to be here in studio for the first time. I know. It's super exciting. I think we've done this on through the phone and then via Zoom and now in person. So we've slowly stepped our game up each time. Better and better each time. And uh, it's fun being here in Memphis. I got to see your exhibit yesterday and going back for a second today. Yeah. Is this your first time in Memphis? First time in a long time, yes. Oh, so you've been you've been to Memphis though before. First time here for ducks. So you've you've been to the museum. Mm-hmm. You saw um, my friend Dr. Johnson's collection this morning. Mm-hmm. And now you're here at headquarters. So, and then we'll be back at the museum tonight. I'm doing the full Memphis <laughs> duck loop. Yeah. And, and you're staying at the Peabody. I, I saw the duck master at the hotel last night uh, <laughs> taking the ducks up to the palace on the yeah, what did you think? What did you think about the duck parade? I Was it underwhelming? Oh, it was overwhelming. <laughs> okay. I absolutely loved it. So, uh, no, it was a great experience. Yeah, that's it's an interesting thing, the, the duck parade. So, last time we talked was 
I guess it was about this time last year, maybe a little bit earlier. Yeah, about a year ago. About a year ago. So you've had probably three sales since then or two? We've had two sales since then. Two sales, uh, we and have, then we got one coming up in February, right? Yeah, so we have okay. two a year. We have our sporting sale okay. in the summer. That's in July. And we have our winter sale in February. Okay. And uh, they're two different names, but everything about the sales have the same DNA, right. same kind of content. Yep. So yeah, we had another great year. I think last time I was here, we were talking about what the market looked like uh, post-COVID. And there was a lot of really positive things to talk about. We were just getting back into shows coming back online. Uh, so we have seen you know a continuation really of that post-COVID marketplace, which right. is... Right, so it hasn't plateaued out at all. It's just continued to kind of... Well, I, I would say it's a continuation of... Um, it has it has not dropped off. It's we, not dropped off. Okay. We have absolutely been, been holding. We're still pulling some new people in. A lot of the new participants that started up about two years ago are as involved as ever. Yeah. Uh, so we're really in the best best position the market's ever been in by a lot of standards. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we're not going to get into political, but yeah, like that staying um, and people are still spending and still going. And now people are traveling and they're still like, they're. I've noticed this year they're, uh, you know, people are traveling to Duck Hunt. They're going back to Canada and mm -hmm. up to South Dakota, but they're still buying decoys too. So, because that was a big theory at once that, you know, that people weren't doing those big duck hunting trips. Mm -hmm. uh, and that that money was going towards decoys, but it doesn't seem to. Have you you can have anything. it all. You can have it all. Yeah, we're we're right <laughs> right here at sort of the end of the other duck season and the beginning of actual duck season. We opened up um, our short season in Massachusetts uh, a few weeks ago, and so we're still in the kind of prime of show season, and we're we're amping up for our next auction. Um, cataloging furiously for that now. We'll uh, sell that in February. So it's been, yeah, it's been a full year loop and everything's been positive. Uh, I think the questions that we had last time were, you know, what are shows going to be like? And so we've been through a year of shows and they're all back online. They're all doing pretty well. Um, so that, that seems to have bounced back very well. They're not back to pre, pre-COVID levels, um, but there's, they're still, yeah, healthy. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, more importantly, because the shows are really, you know, just one kind of small part of the, the decoy community. And, and I don't think they will, I think they'll continue to get more attendance. I don't think they'll go down from where they were this summer. Or like, you know, the shows themselves. I think more people will continue to get a little more confident with going out and doing I, traveling. I think, I think that's correct. And we had a great showing down at the uh, Southeastern Wildlife Expo last year. We did a major preview for our auction mm -hmm. there. We took out an entire ballroom. And that was early with the back to the shows because that's mm -hmm. February, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. that's earlier in the season of the show season. Yeah, that, that one was was back at full strength plus. Uh, and we're... we're involved with the show this year with the festival organizers to really grow that, get some more exhibitors down there. We're doing, I'm going to be doing a talk in addition to previewing the auction. We're going to have another exhibition um, that's, you know, not not birds that are coming up for sale, but just birds that are going to be on exhibit. So uh, what does that exhibit look like? Uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that um, later, but okay. no, there's some good things coming together okay. there. Uh, we're going to have a, a decoy carver chop out, so we'll have wood chips flying. So. Oh, that'll be great. Yeah, there's yeah. going to be a lot of a lot of color yeah, down at the show this great. year. 
Yeah, that'll be really great. I've wanted to do that at the museum here, but um, it doesn't really. You've been to the pyramids, so it's kind of an odd place to. I don't think they want wood chips on their retail items. Ah, you so. throw a couple tarts down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've had um, Job's has come out and painted before. So we hadn't had the wood chips going, but we've had him like have all the bodies basically, and he's painted all of his decoys on site. So we've done that before, but we haven't actually had the, it, the chopping out. It's really, for anybody that hasn't seen a decoy being chopped out or a decoy being painted by somebody that's experienced in a pro, it's something like alchemy. And I, I encourage anybody that has the opportunity to see a decoy carving demonstration to to get on it because it's a beautiful thing when it works. Yeah, I agree. And it, you don't really actually have a whole lot of opportunity to see it. it you don't. It doesn't happen that often at places because um, it it kind of, well painting's a little bit easier, but it requires to bring a lot of stuff. Uh, it does. <laughs> but in the in the spirit of the old timers, what a what a good carver can do with a. Uh, with a hatchet. <laughs> with a hatchet. You, you can you can make a duck with a hatchet if you know what you're doing. Yeah, it's uh, really it. Well, I'm glad y'all are going to be back at Seagui, and that's like beefing back up again because that made me really sad that it went away, and I'm glad it's going back because it's such a special event. So what are the dates for that? So we remember. Uh, Seagui this year is going to be February 17th through 19th. Okay. So that's a yeah, weekend festival, and it's, it's a show that it's an easy draw because there's something for absolutely anybody right. that's listening to this podcast yeah, right now. Yeah, so like you don't just go for the decoys too. You can go, there's music and there's dogs and there's a, everything. Yeah, so, they've got yeah. birds flying around. They have uh, vendors come from all over the country. You can book hunting trips. You can check out the latest hunting gear. A big DU event. Oh, big yeah. Big oyster event. There is, mm-hmm. isn't there? Yeah, it's a big oyster <laughs> event on Friday night, I believe. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's one of those weekends where... You know, you wish you could be in five places at once. It's yeah. so action-packed. Yeah, that's a good weekend. Yeah, all, all happening with the backdrop of Charleston, South Carolina. And then your sale will be the next weekend, right? Exactly. Yeah, so we use that as our last big preview for that auction. So okay. we'll, we'll bring down you know, anything that people want to see in person uh, and the highlights from the sale, put on a big presentation, and then we sell it all the next week. So are you done doing y'all's little drive around for the next sale? Like, you know, y'all usually like, travel around you do your big drive <laughs> and so are y'all done visiting people for this sale or how does that work we're, how do you plan that we're just turn we're just switching over from hitting the road for previewing objects as well as picking up consignments to at this point we really have our inventory set for the okay. february sale you know the lead times to do the type of cataloging that we right. like to do by the time you've photographed it X-rayed it, UV'd it, researched it, um, and then and then got it. You have it in a printed catalog. Yeah, and takes the designer little, takes it. Yeah, and yeah, all that. it takes a little while. So here we are in the beginning of November. We're we're cutting off consignments for this sale. Everything that comes in from now on will sell in the summer. So this, what you've done for now, yeah, we'll sell it in the summer. So what you did, what sells in February, you did last spring. Did you do the consignments for that in the spring? Like, how does that? Yeah, we'll cut off in the spring for that sale. Okay. Um, and yeah, at this point, I have to go back to the decoy room, uh, which is my my de facto office, where I have several hundred decoys staring yeah. staring down at me, and really focus on cataloging okay. and hitting those catalog deadlines. And once we have that catalog together, which is you know sort of that's it's the basically a book. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. We we do two books a year, effectively, yeah. sometimes yeah. more. Um, but once we have that together, then we hit the road for 
what we call the road show. And that's when we're going to collectors' homes uh, individually and sometimes in small group settings and previewing what we have. And that's a really fun part of the experience. When you're going to make that plan where you're going to collectors' homes, do they put in requests of what they want to see? Like, how do you know what to take with you when you're doing that? We we listen to what people are, are asking for. Yeah. And, you know, also we'll just take the highlights. Kind of We, yeah. we know what the, the great objects are going in. And uh, but also yeah, operating by request. Yeah, and, and I'm sure you also know, like, because you've worked with that collector before, what they're looking for. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's that's sort of the last the last time we hit the road before the auction. Uh, I really enjoy that because I've I've been able to research all the decoys. I know as much as I'm ever going to know about them, <laughs> yeah. and then I get to get to present them uh, a lot of times in a one on one setting. Yeah, and you get to be with the collectors too, which is which is what I like about this is like I get to talk to them and I get to hear their knowledge and things they have to offer for me to learn from, so you get to kind of like get that back and forth. It is a, a phenomenal part of what we get to do uh, and I spent my morning doing that and it was yeah. a, you know absolute pleasure and you know look forward to the the next day I was doing that yesterday out. yeah you get to uh, nerd out on whatever they have and they're excited and you're excited yeah That's yeah cool. it definitely it's a great way to connect with people uh, you know just talking about shared passions yeah. uh, and we we certainly have those um, these painted wooden wooden blocks that look yeah. like birds Let's talk a little bit about the past year and what has happened since we last talked in the market and a few of those highlights. Let's pull some of those out from the last year. Yeah, so the last year was it was one of the best years ever for decoys. Uh, I think you know last time we got together we talked about uh, some of the highlights from 2021. We're just about so at Copley we're closed out with 2022. Right. Um, we had two phenomenal sales. They were really um, I would say even keeled, well balanced. Uh, they kind of hit some of those numbers that we're aiming for, which is a you know high average price per lot, really high sell through rate. Uh, I think we were around 96 percent in each of those sales. Um, both of the sales were well over three million dollars, um, right up around the high estimates before the sale. And so by all the by all the numbers, it was great. But if you zoom in and look at some of the individual objects. I think one of the most exciting lots that came up was the Shang Wheeler uh, wood duck pair uh, that was from the collection of David and Peggy Rockefeller. Okay. And a client of ours bought them out of that sale only a few years ago. And we had the opportunity to do what we do with decoys, which is research them intensely when the opportunity presents itself. And it was one of the more satisfying uh, kind of research projects that uh, we got to bring to the marketplace and the market responded. We set a new record for the state of Connecticut, not insignificant, yeah. uh, obviously a new record for Shang Wheeler and uh, sort of officially notched those birds up there as some of the greatest wood duck decoys on the planet. So where... How long have the Rockefellers had them, and then where were they before? Like, do you know? That is a great question, <laughs> and it was something that had been uh, lost to lost to history until we started digging again. Um, when I first got the birds in, I looked at them and asked the question: "All right, what are the greatest wood duck decoys on the planet? Right. What are the greatest wood duck pairs on the planet?" I was say pairs. There's not that many pairs. Yeah, I think we, we might have been looking at them right there. Yeah, I was just um, like, I was like, well, the first one that comes around is the Lincoln one. That, that's, indeed. Yeah, indeed. that's the first one you think of. And yeah. then, I mean, there's, of course, like 
Um, there's a bunch Thomas, of them. Thomas Chambers made a pretty good yeah, one. Yeah, there's some good ones um, out there. But Elmer Kroll wasn't so bad. But no. they're, they're, they're super rare, and they almost never come in pairs. Uh, but just going back to the, the pure research side of it, we were looking up, all right, you know, what's out there in the world of Wheeler? What are the best pieces? Yeah, so walk me through, and like our listeners, because I think this is actually interesting, and people probably don't think about this. Um, what are the steps you take to research this? So this one actually started with a photograph. Okay. And we we only knew the provenance going backwards, you know, from the Rockefellers, that we knew Donald O'Brien Jr., was probably involved because he was involved with virtually all the Rockefeller birds, but we didn't know much else beyond that. And then it was as simple as picking up the Shang Wheeler book and looking at maybe the most famous photo of Shang Wheeler decoys ever. It was from the National Decoy Show in, uh, I want to say 1948 or so. And if you look really carefully, there's this incredible wall of some of the best Shang Wheeler decoys ever made. And the idea is that that collection went off and was uh, in a in a private institution, or sorry, a public institution, and then was sold privately in a, a pretty well-documented story. But here are those birds, and obviously they didn't go the direction of the rest of the birds. So we dig a little bit deeper, and we find out that Tom Marshall, a friend of Shang Wheeler's, uh, had done the appraisal for Wheeler's estate when he passed away. Okay. And... He also acquired those decoys in the teeny little window between when they were in that photo and when Wheeler's estate was <laughs> accounted for. So Marshall peels these off very, <laughs> very specifically. And it was through Marshall that they ended up going to Donald O'Brien and uh, to the Rockefellers. And so, you know, here were a pair of birds where they had one bookend of phenomenal provenance with Rockefeller. Yeah. But we were able to show that, okay, Marshall picked these out of the Wheeler estate right. effectively. And even beyond that, Wheeler had these in his own personal hunting rig and uh, public display rig. Uh, huh. So it was really fun to you know bring the birds back to their origin yeah, and say, yeah, you know, they've checked the box at the highest level throughout their entire existence. And yeah. Uh, now they've moved on to That's another. That's really cool. Yeah, and you actually have like a secure provenance, which is not always easy. It is not. <laughs> yeah, you don't always expect to have a pure chain of custody through right. uh, through decoys because these things haven't always been. Well, they weren't always highly valued. Exactly. So, yeah, they didn't think of them that way. Um, yeah, that's really cool. And that's actually, I like doing it that way because that way our listeners can kind of understand like how the research for some of these things happens, like what they, how you start and go through that process. Cause I don't think that's always intuitive. Yeah. And as another guide for the people looking at our catalog, you know, we were thinking, all right, we're making a pretty grand statement that, you know, these are, these are the greatest wood, this is the greatest wood duck pair and they're some of the greatest wood ducks period. Uh, but rather than taking our word for it, we actually went to the, the record books and we said, what are the top wood ducks that have ever sold and we got photos of all of those birds and we pictured them with their sale prices and you know let people decide for themselves you know where do you think they rank among the pieces that have already sold for yeah um, pretty significant sums and yeah. uh yeah the market responded positively so it was satisfying and it was very i would say something like wholesome experience where we got to to come at it from every angle mm -hmm. and everything connected. So we got that one. Okay. So there are the Next. wheelers. <laughs> you know, one segment of the market that's been really exciting recently is Nantucket. So Nantucket 
is this island off the coast of Massachusetts, and <laughs> it had a really robust uh, community back when the whaling industry was booming. Uh, but once that whaling industry moved to New Bedford, Nantucket got a little bit quieter. And a lot of the history of the birds out there has been lost or is tucked away pretty deeply. We're doing some digging now. But we were able to identify... So, hold on, before you go into that. Mm -hmm. How are they hunting on Nantucket? So Nan I know how they are on Cape Cod because they have kettle ponds. Mm -hmm. What are they doing on Nantucket? So, Nantucket, they have the saltwater ponds. The same, the... It's a little bit different because of the geography. What will happen is the beach will cut, essentially a beach will cut off a creek. And so you'll have a saltwater pond behind that. Okay. So a lot of hunting is happening on on those. And then some of the sandy points around the okay. uh, around the island. And there's a little bit of inland stuff as well. Right. Uh, but historically, Nantucket out in the ocean had this epic migration of the now extinct Eskimo curlew and also the golden plover. And yeah. so these two... Um, really beautiful species um, would hit Nantucket in a way that they didn't touch down anywhere else, okay. uh, anywhere in sort of the decoy-making regions. And so Nantucket has this really tight connection to these two species um, that you know, collectors love them because they're, they're great looking. And we're starting to learn more about, we're actually writing a book on Nantucket decoys now, um, but we're learning more about how they hunted some of these shorebird species and they're hunting them up in the meadows. So Nantucket okay. was covered in these grass moors. Right. And the sheep are up in the meadows, but so are the grasshoppers mm -hmm. that like to be in the okay. grass. And the curlews and the plover are eating these grasshoppers. And so some of these birds they're making on the island were never even touching the salt water. And we have we have provenance going back, you know, pre-Civil War on some of these, and they're still in great condition. Right, because they're not in the salt water, so they they're not even getting got that. Wet. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So, yeah, we had, we've seen the record price for an Nantucket decoy break. It's three or four times in the last two years, uh, which is pretty significant. We usually don't see that kind of rapid turnover at the top. Uh, but most recently, it was a, a curlew by an unnamed but highly recognizable maker, it was somebody that actually influenced Elmer Kroll and his famous dust jacket birds. And that's another story I yeah, won't get yeah, into yeah. now. Yeah. Um, but we we sold that bird for $228,000. Um, so that was a big, big highlight there. And, you know, the segue on Nantucket is we're bringing a collection, uh, the Stephen O'Brien Senior Collection, mm -hmm. to auction this February. And it's Looks like it's the most significant offering ever of Nantucket decoys. And Steve was a, uh, a source collector out on the island. And we're having a lot of fun cataloging yeah. uh, some of his top birds now. We're going to have a, a rig of seven plover. Uh, oh, wow. One of the that's, lots. A, that's a lot. Yeah. So it's going to be some some things that people have never seen before, never had the opportunity to touch before. I mean, if you've seen Nantucket shorebirds, you can understand why they're going for what mm -hmm. money they are because they're beautiful. But why now? That's a great question. I think it only takes a handful of people to move a market. And once that momentum starts, other folks will usually start paying attention. And I'm also, sure there's some sort of psychology behind that that I don't understand, but yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm sure there is. And I, I know that de good decoys will bring people in. So that's what I, I focus on. 
the shorebird market has always been a little bit more volatile than the decoy market. Right. Or the, sorry, the duck market. Yes. Duck and goose yeah. market. And it's because there's less people that are familiar with shorebirds. Uh, the shorebird hunting tradition obviously has been gone for, uh, call it a century now. And so usually it's fewer people buying shorebirds. And with that, you have more volatility. And so Nantucket is a subsection of shorebirds largely. There were some great waterfowl carved out there. Uh, but yeah, it's just a little bit more volatile and it's it's rightfully on an upswing right now. I find that shorebirds will get collectors that aren't necessarily waterfowlers. They have more of a, I feel like they have more of a decorative art yeah. side to their market than necessarily ducks do. Yeah, people that love birds, people that identify as folk art collectors or Americana collectors, will be just as, if not more, drawn to some of the shorebirds. They have a little different audience than... Yeah. And a lot of advanced collectors of decoys will eventually find their way to shorebirds. Uh, And people that live on the coast, obviously, have more experience with shorebirds. And so that helps. But no, the shorebirds are an amazing part of the decoy portfolio. Oh, they're beautiful. Yeah. And they're different. They're not the same. I don't know. They're really pretty. And the paint on them are always like incredible. Yeah, they, they present a, a different set of challenges for the maker and it's fun to see how these different carvers responded uh, to the, the nuances of some of the shorebird species, especially uh, especially curlew. Yeah, well, I'm like, I don't want to get into all this, but like the way they treat the bill on them on all of them are different and mm-hmm. how, they, how they manage that they solve that problem. And- you get wooden bills, metal bills, mortise and tenon fits. You have dovetailed heads on some shorebirds. Yeah. Uh, the bird that from Nantucket was famous for its hollow shorebirds. You think who needs to? Who needs a hollow shorebird? shorebird? But, but apparently, it just became the standard out out there on that that's small interesting. island. Huh, that's uh, so, interesting. No, that's that's been a really exciting part of the marketplace. But also, yeah, we're doing a lot with that just on the pure research side uh, as the the team back at Copley headquarters is working on the book. So let's talk a little bit about, as we say in the museum biz, flat art or paintings. <laughs> yeah, I was listening back to. Our our last conversation and uh, we we certainly didn't talk about paintings and it's a huge part of what we do at Copley. I'm the decoy specialist so maybe I'm a little bit biased but right now we're seeing uh, dog paintings uh, are doing particularly well. Southern subject matter is doing really well but what do you call southern subject matter? So uh, early paintings of quail, uh, early you know, pointers out in the field on quail scenes. Uh, that's a, a really popular scene, um, and they're they're fairly rare. Uh, but yeah. one of the top, so there's the big three early American dog painters. You have Edmund Osthaus, Gustav Mussernault, and Percival Leonard Rousseau. And we're seeing uh, record prices or near record prices for all three of those artists. Um, so that, and, and again, right, rightfully so, they're absolutely amazing, and I, I think they will continue to, to look good down the road. Uh, but there's still some opportunities yeah. in that space. Uh, you know, Aiden LaSalle, Ripley, A.B. Frost, Ogden Pleisner are all doing well. It can really vary depending on the subject matter there. Again, quail scenes are particularly strong. The age of collectors are, you know, primarily in their 60s, 70s. And those are Southern scenes. And I, I don't know where they're mostly bottom, if they are Southerners. But that is probably the last group of hunters that got to hunt quail in the South. I think that is absolutely, I, I can say that absolutely is a factor for some individuals. There's also a, um, I'd say a high correlation between folks that can afford managed quail, uh, mm-hmm. that can also afford 
premier yeah. painting to the subject matter. Right. And to that, there's some crossover happening yeah. there as well. Um, looking at the flat art list, one of the the artists that's he's one of the all time greats. He's internationally renowned. He hangs in the top museums, not only in America but but abroad. Is Frank W. Benson, and his sporting artwork is is been down recently. And one of the things that's great about Benson is his availability. So you can start collecting Benson etchings in the hundreds of dollars, and yeah. over you know, over a lifetime, you can evolve into collecting Bensons for uh, millions of dollars if you want to, if you want right. to go there. And yeah, so there's definitely some opportunity with Benson at the moment. And I, yeah, I, I love his etchings. I own some of them. I, I know a lot of people that do, and they're always coming up for market. Uh, so yeah, he, there's a lot out there. On. Yeah, and there's a lot out there. He produced a lot of his etchings were produced. So there's um, a lot to choose from too. Yeah. yeah. So anybody that looking looking to get into early exceptional American sporting art, Frank Benson is a great entry point on a couple of different levels right now. Yeah. So I want to ask you, since you're talking about Benson, because he is so widely available, and if people are looking to collect him, he's one of those that will show up on eBay and things like that. So how would you? What would be your warnings for someone that's looking at that stuff on eBay? Like, how do there any signs <laughs> that you would look for that it's not a Benson, you know, that's being advertised as a, or you know, uh, caveat emptor there. You know, we focus on uh, original etchings, original right. pencil signed etchings, and it takes work for us to sort through what's out there, and so we we do that work for our clients. I guess really just. Depends on who your source is. Like, watch out for your source. Where yeah, you're getting it from. Yeah, if you're if you're going to try to to approach it from some of those alternative avenues, you really want to do your homework. Get very confident with with what's right before you do any buying. Um, a lot of people have that buy prints have stories of early on. You know, I thought I was buying this, and I was actually buying that, and uh, you know. So if you're going to make mistakes, do it somewhere you can af- afford. Um, so. Right. Yeah. Just Vincent's one that you could make mistakes on. Like that's why I want to bring that up. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of prints of prints, and so the the value of a print of an of a Benson etching might be decorative value. So right. twenty five fifty bucks. You know, you're paying for the cost of the frame, and that same etching as you know a limited edition of pencil signed etchings by Benson done a hundred years ago. Yeah, you know, that can be worth. $10,000. Right. And there's a, a pretty big gap and you don't want to get caught in the middle there. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I want to make sure that was kind of a warning for people because if you want to jump in on that one, you want to make sure you're doing it right. <laughs> all etchings are prints and not all prints are etchings. Exactly. There we go. There you go. <laughs> all right. Well, I think this is a good time to stop for our break. We'll be right back. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. 
Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. I forgot to ask this earlier, so I want to bring it back. But y'all have some big news in that you'll have some additions to Copley. Uh, can you speak on that? I am absolutely thrilled to, on, on behalf of all my colleagues, uh, welcome Jim and Debbie Allen on board as the newest members of the Copley team. Uh, Jim and Debbie have been involved at a high level in the decoy field for longer than I've been alive. Uh, Jim was mentored by Johnny Hillman, among others, and is really a cornerstone uh, of the decoy community. He's been a go-to person, uh, especially on uh, his region of New Jersey and the Delaware River area, and yeah, some of the most beloved folks in the in the community. And I now get to work with them, yeah. and uh, it's absolute pleasure. We, we, they just just signed up, uh, I guess, this summer. So we're off to a off to a great start, and looking forward to doing more with them. Yeah. So, what are they gonna be focusing on going forward? They are kind of good at, at everything related to decoys. So okay. they're going to be out on the road representing us at shows. They're going to be working directly with clients that are looking to sell, as well as clients that are looking to buy. And yeah, just kind of working on the general you know decoy department and the direction that we're moving forward. Um, they're. Are huge, huge addition to the team. There's yeah. not a lot of people that have the knowledge and the availability that it takes to be a, a decoy specialist for right. for an auction firm, and uh, they they fit the slot perfectly. Oh, that's great. So let's talk about things you have coming up for sale. So we talked about uh, the Nantucket decoy right. collection that we have coming up. Uh, another collection that has been really exciting and frankly, educational for me personally, has been the Richard and Dorothy Wheeler collection of Pacific Coast decoys. Richard started collecting, I believe it was in 1960, 6-0, and he was a source collector. So he was out there on the Pacific Coast meeting with some of the carvers themselves. Okay, so what's the range? So it starts up in British Columbia and works all the the way down to... Okay. Yeah, all the way down to... um, you know, Los Angeles okay. uh, when you get to High Crandall at the end and everything in the middle. Uh, so, yeah, looking just at his collection, 
uh, is a great representation of some of the best of the West. You have a standing Canada goose by Jerry Mastin. And this is a a famous rig of nine, but it's actually not a rig of nine the way the decoys work because one of them was lost. Another one lost its head. Another one has a replaced neck. And so I think you end up down to about six of these birds that are in good shape. And yeah, we have one of those coming up. It's the first time I've Exciting. Yeah, first yeah. time I've ever had one to, to catalog and dig into. But that's a, a great, great decoy. It's one of the best goose decoys from anywhere in the country. Right. Certainly uh, yeah, as good as it gets out on the West Coast. And there's not many Canada goose decoys on the West Coast. No, there really aren't. Um, there are a lot of brant decoys uh, really? up in the Northwest. Okay. Yeah. So you got a huge range of brant decoys. Probably the most famous of all of them are the flying brant of George McClellan. And this is a place where Richard Wheeler uh, was one of the great documentarians. So he actually he learned about McClellan in the early 70s, went to go see him, and he tried buying a decoy off him at the time. And he has stuck with it until he got one about a year later. But... It, We'll have to give you a picture of one of these brands okay. to put up because it's hard to describe, but you have a, a wooden brant body and it's a flyer. So the thing is reaching out like a dart and it has these wings where it's stretched canvas over wood made with super complex joints and then this custom metal hardware where the wings attach to the body. And then you would have elastics that would attach to the top of the wing the top of the wing to the top of the bird and the bottom of the wing to the bottom. And that bird would go out with uh, the rest of the rig and he would have them on these metal poles on a floating raft. Okay. Out on this choppy... I'm guessing he also made the floating raft. Absolutely. <laughs> and he had floating, floating decoys as yeah. well. But he had this action-packed floating... Uh, flying rig of flapping brant decoys. How many were on there? I, I I'm going to say it's about a dozen. Uh, it might be a couple less than that. Okay. I, I think it was it was going to be a dozen, then it didn't finish them. Okay. Anyway, yeah. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we have. You know, Richard actually went met with McClellan, photographed McClellan with his brant, got the entire story of how they were used. They were only used about a dozen times over the course of 20 years. So it was this real specialty rig, and McClellan took incredibly good care of them. But we're bringing one of those to to auction uh, this year, and it's actually McClellan Brandt that holds the record for any Pacific Coast decoy okay. <clears throat> at the moment. So it's actually a McClellan Brandt that holds the record for any Pacific Coast decoy at this point, and okay. uh, so kind of gives you an idea where they fit in in the hierarchy of, of right. West Coast decoys. I think everybody out there is familiar with uh, decoy wine and yes. the fresh air Dick Jansen pintail on the label of that. And so we'll have some some Jansen decoys, yeah. of course. Uh, there's also the the High Crandall Sleepy Eye Mallard Drake, which is this great animated decoy. I think it's probably a one of a kind. Uh, yeah, another highlight you know, Pacific Coast decoys can get kind of folksy too. Like they kind of can they can go from that like. Mastin, like perfection decoy, but then they can be very kind of almost have a Louisiana, Illinois River folksiness to them. They have a real variety. 
There's a huge variety across the Pacific Coast and you know, a number of different schools of carving. And one thing that I've really been learning about as I'm researching these birds is some of these guys are described as market hunters, but then I'm looking at the age of the decoy and scratching my head, and it turns out that they were market hunters well after the laws were passed. Oh, really? Yes, yeah, so you have a lot of guys carving decoys for themselves, uh, you know, just doing what they can to make a living during the Depression. Yeah. And so you, you know, you've got some colorful characters uh, yeah. as well as a, a pretty wide variety of decoys. And um, Richard and Dorothy put together this yeah. so very what's broad your, based collection. What's the primary species of decoys out there? I would say that pintails Pint probably stand out the most. You, yeah. you see a higher proportion of pintails mm -hmm. um, to other decoys. In the Pacific Northwest area, you have a lot of black brant, yeah. uh, which is... Uh, those kind of stick out because you don't see them anywhere else. And then you have plenty of mallards and some of the expected puddle duck species. Yeah. But yeah, I'd say pintails are probably the most standout, highly represented species, which is great because... They uh, sell good. They, they, well, they sell good because they're, they're absolutely beautiful. Exactly. And they presented some unique challenges to the carvers and the great carvers stepped up and made the most of them. Yeah, we haven't really talked um, extensively about and really at all about Pacific Coast stories. I mean, we could get really into it, but um, that's something we'll have to have to look into future so to talk a little more about. Well, when this catalog is done, I'll, I'll know <laughs> even more about them. So I invite that conversation. Yeah, we can go into those because I don't even think people think about decoys when they think about the West Coast. Yeah, it's really a big jump over the mountains to get there. And so it's a it's a very different decoy culture. Uh, oh, yeah. And also the, the collectors over there have been very uh, possessive, maybe, of their decoys. Yeah. They are of their duck calls, too. Okay. Yeah, so. <laughs> I, I believe it. So <laughs> I've been on the hunt for great Pacific Coast decoys for years. And we'll, you know, get them in onesies, twosies. And this is... This is the first time that we're seeing a collection like this ever come to market. Oh, where that's you can exciting. Get a big slice of the West Coast pie. Yeah. Well, it'll be good just to kind of see how they do in the market and what that like really, I mean, because that might, if they do well, a certain do well, then that might bring more opportunities for more. And it'll be really exciting just to see what the outcome is. Yeah, we're, we're excited and just frankly honored to have the opportunity to introduce a lot of people to this, this great waterfowling region. Uh, so, yeah, that's definitely a highlight of the upcoming sale. Before we go, is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you'd like to touch on? Um, I I think that just overall, I feel good about the direction of the marketplace. We've, we've made this switch into having people participating remotely. Um, and actually, last time we talked, we were trying to quantify what that silent majority is of yeah. participants. Yeah. And this was a stat that is tattooed in my in my brain now ever since I saw it. So before every auction, we'll print out the top invoice totals for customers. And I'm looking at the list and saying, these people don't go to decoy shows or decoy auctions. And it's eight out of the top 10 invoices at our firm are for people that have never gone to a decoy show or a decoy auction. Interesting. And that's something that it surprised me on its face. And the more I thought about it, I said, well, you know, it, I guess it makes sense because it's, it's the reality that we're living with. But it yeah. makes me feel feel even better about the way that so many people are participating remotely today. Yeah. And, so, and I wonder what that stat would have been. I mean, now it's hard to tell, but what it would have been pre-COVID. 
if it would how what that change would have been, or if it would have really even changed, it might have stayed the same. That that sector of the market didn't have much adjustment in that short period of time, so it would have been about the same. Yeah, or, or pretty darn it, comparable. I would think it would have been the same because I think if you weren't going. I would say that people that were going may be aren't going now, but I would think that the people who weren't going are still not going. Yeah. But yeah, it, it really shows me that we can we can have it all. We can, you know, Steve O'Brien and I are spending as much time as ever out on the road doing shows, doing these previews, and we're also you know able to have people participating remotely that you know we never see and that they're having a great time doing what they're doing. And so, yeah, it's definitely been encouraging to see the kind of the lasting effect and the, the durability of that. Good, good, uh, good signs for the market ahead and just general participation. So do you have any um, talks coming up? This summer at the Wendell Gilly Museum up at Southwest Harbor, Maine, my brother is going to take a break from his duties at High and Dry Waiters to join my father and I for <clears throat> what's going to be a few days of events where we're going to do a carving demonstration. I'm going to actually do a talk on the history of decoy collecting. Oh, great. Something that we've been kind of naturally doing at Copley as we tell the stories of collectors doing Mm -hmm. dedicated catalogs and such. But I really want to formalize some of those ideas and get them all in one place because decoy collecting has been going on for over 100 years now. And some of the people that know what was happening in the beginning aren't aren't around anymore and want to start locking that down because it's becoming you know, an important subsection of the collecting field. Well, and it's also been considered as, you know, it's starting to be taken into not just waterfowling museums like our museum, but into art museums. And it's an interesting history, like, to have that why. Like, why weren't they then and why are they now? Like, that, and that's, that's that collecting history, honestly. So that's kind of really that tells that story of why. Uh, absolutely. So I'm ho- hoping to be able to articulate some of those ideas. And it, it's so far researching, it's been an interesting one. Well, that sounds great, Colin. Thanks for coming to the show. Um, I'm glad to have you back. Thanks so much for having me, Katie. Always a pleasure and look forward to next time. Yep. Sounds great. Thanks again, Colin, for coming on the show. And thanks to Chris, our producer. And thanks to you, our listeners, for supporting wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. 
Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. 